Welcome to the Forgiveness Lab podcast. In the Forgiveness Lab, we understand forgiveness as the power of God at work in our lives, removing obstacles that have limited love and well-being, lifting burdens that have crushed our spirits and distorted our full humanity, tending carefully wounds of the soul, releasing us from constraints that have stifled reconciliation and the practice of community, liberating us to see and experience ourselves and those around us through the eyes and the heart of God. We understand forgiveness as a power for healing and wholeness as something that's not transactional, but very gracious and life-giving. And we're committed here to exploring every dimension of it that we can. Really grateful our guest today is Chris Antal. Chris is staff chaplain at the Michael J. Crescens VA Medical Center in Philadelphia. He's a former U.S. Army chaplain who served in Afghanistan in 2012 and 2013. Unitarian Universalist minister serving the UU congregation in Rock Tavern, New York. Chris is a dear friend and colleague. (laughs) And we share much together, even when we're not recording podcasts. So welcome. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be here. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, particularly around your work with moral injury. But I think I just want to start out more conversationally and ask you to tell us about your own experiences of forgiveness in your life journey. Can you think of some where you've either offered it or received it? Or? Yeah, well, I can I can do that. But before I do that, I want to further locate myself. I appreciate your introduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a, a minister in the Unitarian Universalist tradition. I'm not a Christian. And uh, I think there's a whole conversation we could have around forgiveness in the Christian context mm-hmm. and certain assumptions that I just don't share. So Good. I just wanted to That's... put that on the table. Amen. Uh, I also wanted to locate myself as a male and a white male and a citizen of the United States. And with all of those identities, acknowledge a privilege that I have. And uh, just uh, in the commitment to just total honesty, uh, the challenge, and as I mentioned in the car, the dread Mm -hmm. I feel about talking uh, about this topic, uh, while aware that as a man and as a white man and as a citizen of a superpower nation, I belong to groups that have perpetrated a lot of harm in the world uh, across history. Mm -hmm. The dread for me of approaching this topic is, is to fall into the trap of hubris, that who am I as this privileged white man who's a citizen of a superpower nation that has, of course, done good and well at times, but also uh, these groups have done significant harm. Who am I to talk about forgiveness? So I just want to put that on the table Mm -hmm. uh, right from the beginning before we we get into details. Mm -hmm. Well, in doing that, I think you're certainly locating us collectively. Uh, And so if we're going to discuss forgiveness or explore it, more than a good dose of humility, (laughs) it seems to me is required. And also um, confession. I mean, what you just said was confessional. Now, you and I have known each other for a while. We've been friends for like six years. I hope we're still friends after this conversation. Well, of course we will be. Uh, (laughs) Are you kidding? After all the stuff you and I have been through. Um, but you know, knowing you as I do, I've 
I've, I've seen you and heard you and witnessed you in confessional mode more than once, you know, of seeking, uh, you know, your, your uh, maybe we can talk about this along the way too, your Veterans Day confession uh, that was a message that you shared at uh, the airfield in Kandahar when you were pastoring in Afghanistan, uh, Veterans Day Confession for America, if I remember correctly. You're also somebody who, you know, when you resigned your commission as an Army chaplain, uh, did so, and, you know, I would like to have you talk more about this, but did so, you know, identifying um, and, uh, and naming, um, you know, the, the, the sin of drone policies and the taking of people's lives, targeting of people's lives. And you've also told me stories of your, of your, your journey to Hiroshima two or three years ago uh, when you uh, carried uh, a message of confession and a seeking of forgiveness. So that's a lot right there. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. And, and I don't want to avoid the initial question that you right. asked about right. my experiences of forgiveness. But I do think it's important to frame the conversation mm -hmm. And just lay out a couple of, I guess I would call them claims of where I stand with regards to forgiveness. So one, one position that I just want to put on the table is that I don't see forgiveness necessarily as a moral virtue. Okay. Uh, it's complicated. Forgiveness is complicated. At times, it could be the morally virtuous act, but not necessarily so. So I just wanted to put that out there. Mm -hmm. And maybe challenge in a way, uh, an assumption that mm. we ought to aspire towards forgiving, that right. forgiving is inherently a moral good. So I want to challenge that notion up front and suggest that, well, um, it's complicated. And there are circumstances when the morally virtuous act is perhaps not to forgive. So I just want to put that well, out that, there. I, I certainly hope we can discuss that more. That'd be great. <laughs> yes. And, and then I know uh, you mentioned Hiroshima, uh, and that, and I have a story about that. My visit there uh, leads us to the topic of the unforgivable. Mm -hmm. And the claim, and I'll make this claim, that there are some acts that ought to be unforgivable. Mm -hmm. And the morally virtuous path would be not to forgive. Well, it, I certainly want to talk about that some more. <laughs> so I don't, um, you didn't tell me how much time we have or how long we're, we're going to uh, hour, hour contain man. this discussion. Let me um, back up and answer your question about experiences of forgiveness. When I, and you mentioned my work in, in VA and my work with moral injury, and we do a group in the VA, and we talk about forgiveness in the group. And I often will frame uh, forgiveness as four types, four types of forgiveness. Three are related to being a perpetrator of wrongdoing or harm. And those three realms, I guess, is the language I would use, realms mm -hmm. of forgiveness, would include divine forgiveness, in that realm, self-forgiveness, and um, forgiveness from others, uh, the ones whom have been harmed. Mm -hmm. So those three realms of forgiveness relate 
to perpetration um, and being the wrongdoer right. in a when, relationship. When we're the perpetrator. Yeah. And then the fourth realm of forgiveness that we talk about and explore in my work is forgiveness after um, being harmed. Mm-hmm. The experience of resentment towards a perpetrator or a wrongdoing mm-hmm. doer and uh, the kind of uh, forgiveness that we need from others. Mm-hmm. Or no, that we extend to others, excuse me. Okay. That we extend to others okay. who've harmed us. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that covers uh, <clears throat> a good deal of territory, but also being able to talk about those things with a certain distinction, I think, is really important. So I, I, I said earlier that forgiveness is complex, and I think thinking about forgiveness in those four realms mm-hmm. and breaks it down some of that complexity. In my tradition, uh, as a Unitarian, I can't assume that people who are listening really know anything about what that means, so I'll just say uh, essentially what, what it means to belong to a Unitarian Universalist congregation is to covenant to uh, affirm and promote certain principles of right relationship. Mm-hmm. So what matters in our religious community is not right belief, but right behavior. Mm-hmm. And we have seven principles that define what right behavior looks like, what right relationship looks like with one another, but also with the earth. And for us, um, we like to say that uh, ethical living is the supreme witness of our faith. Um, So I think it's important for me just to kind of lay that out so that uh, know where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's no... um, teaching or dogma, doctrine in our community that says that there is a God who's a forgiving God, that that we will go to some place after we die and we'll be punished or not punished according to uh, how we've lived or how we haven't lived. Mm-hmm. Our religious tradition is really a tradition that focuses on life in this world, right relationships in this world, mm-hmm. and creating a uh, benevolent community of love and justice Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in this world, not someplace beyond after death. So in a sense, um, I mean, the the way that you're describing, I'm responding as a Christian pastor, Mm -hmm. uh, what you just described has a good deal in common with with the life of of Jesus. Well, um, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. Certainly uh, most People who would identify as a Unitarian Universalist would regard Jesus's teachings uh, with great respect mm-hmm. uh, and would regard Jesus as a wisdom teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, some might regard Jesus as the Christ and Messiah. We certainly welcome those views. So mm-hmm. there's a diversity of views on who Jesus was in our tradition. For me, uh, Jesus was a wisdom teacher and um uh, Our tradition, like many liberal progressive religious traditions, value reason and experience as much as, if not more than, scripture and tradition. Mm -hmm. So what we learn from science and our experience in life has equal, if sometimes more weight than what we may read about Jesus in the Bible. Right, right. I think that uh, is an important point just to, to lay out as well as we approach this topic of forgiveness. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to meet you in a sort of common territory there because I think that, and you know, my own understanding, 
just even in terms of the life of Jesus. And uh, not just as a set of teachings, but as a way of living. Um, is very much, you know, revealed in relationship and covenant with other people. It's uh, the focus on the building of community and, uh, you know, the practice of, you know, agape love, a, a, a living toward one another and an honoring of one another is very much in his teaching uh, in the Gospels of this world focus. So I think that that's, you know, I just wanted to to uh, uh, to respond to you know I'm appreciating how clearly you're articulating, and I wanted to to meet that a bit um, because I think that uh, you know there's some you know territory you know that I'd love to explore together. One of the ways that I think of Jesus in a you know forgiving life and. In my teaching and my writing, I often hyphenate the the English terms for forgiving. You know, forgiving. You know, giving for or toward another person, or forgiving. F O R E, in that mm-hmm. the actions that we take towards someone else are not solely reactive, but uh, but an initiative on our part. Jesus in the Gospels doesn't have a single place to lay his head. And so, in a sense, he lives a kind of life that is available to people, where he is available to people, and open to them in the experiences of where they are and where they're at. So anyway, that's just, uh, you know, some more forgiveness territory. Let me give you a specific example of uh, maybe the first experience I remember of forgiveness uh, from my life. Um, I think I was probably eight or nine, no more than 10. And I was playing with my friend Mike in a cemetery near our house. And um, he had a BB gun and he let me use it. And I aimed at him. He was hiding behind a a stone in the cemetery Mm -hmm. and actually fired the BB gun. And the BB, uh, I thought I was shooting at his feet um, but it ricocheted off the stone and it hit him right in the mouth and shattered his tooth. Oh, my. And he screamed. He was crying. There was blood. Uh, it was awful. And um, actually, I can't even remember what happened in the moments after that. I think he ran home. And, uh, and then I went home. And feeling really bad and feeling really concerned... And then the next thing that I remember is the phone ringing. (laughs) The phone was ringing, and it was uh, Michael's mother Mm -hmm. calling our house, Mm -hmm. wanting to speak to my mother. Mm -hmm. And I I hadn't said anything to my mother about what had happened. And it was a few hours had passed now. So what ensued over the next uh, day or so was a series of meetings. And I just remember the fear and the guilt that I felt that I had caused this harm, that I had done something terribly wrong, and I didn't know how I could fix it. And my parents were upset and expressed their disappointment in me, and that was something I hadn't experienced before either, and I didn't like the way that felt. Um, But I was most concerned about seeing my friend again, and especially meeting his mother. Mm -hmm. She was a nice woman, 
but I thought um, she was going to kill me. I mean, I didn't know what she was going to do, but I shot her son in the face with a BB gun. But my experience of that, that memory I have, was that she said uh, how glad she was that it wasn't worse than it was, that I could have shot out an eye and it Mm -hmm. didn't happen, and that they're very fortunate that they have dental insurance that are going to repair the tooth. And it was this experience of, I guess I would call it forgiveness, a sense that I had made a mistake. I acknowledged that I had made a mistake. I was still welcome in their home. Uh, My friendship with Michael uh, was strained, but it was restored. Mm -hmm. And we moved on from that. Mm -hmm. So I think I tell that story as maybe my first memory of being in the wrong, of perpetrating harm, and then experiencing those whom I've harmed quite directly forgiving me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the forgiveness would have been in sort of the graciousness of, of uh, you know, um, recognizing your ongoing relationship mm-hmm. with Michael. Uh, yeah, it was in, there's the, there's there gra- a sense of graciousness. I wasn't, you know, my family wasn't asked to pay right. um, uh, anything. Uh, and in, in the restoring of the relationship, mm-hmm. that the relationship didn't end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd never touched a, a gun or anything uh, like a BB gun ever since that day. Really? Yes. Yeah, so there's a long-standing impact that way. And it sounds like, you know, another part of that, though, that I think is really important in terms of any discussion of forgiveness is that there was a, a speaking and honoring of, of, of truth. There was an accountability for what you had done, even, even in the graciousness of the approach of Michael's family. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, look, we need, you know, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about what you did. Uh, yeah, the yeah. accountability was, I was called to account. Right. I initially tried to just uh, hide it, mm-hmm. but eventually, yes, I was held accountable. Mm-hmm. And it was an uncomfortable experience, but one I'll never forget, of being mm-hmm. held accountable for being the perpetrator of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you were able, you wound up acknowledging that and... Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think again, what 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 strikes me there is, you know, the the accountability for the truth, but also the possibility of having a continuing relationship in spite of injury that had been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's a that's a powerful story. From did you say we're nine? Yeah, I couldn't have been more than ten. Yeah, and I, I think what um, what was interesting about that also was my parents and their expression of um, not only disappointment, but also their sense of moral responsibility, Mm -hmm. that they shared some sense of moral responsibility for what I, as their Uh child, had had Mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. Uh, That even though I did it, you know, I pulled the trigger, I aimed that gun, I fired it, they were nowhere around, Mm -hmm. but somehow they felt responsible also Mm -hmm. for, for that action that I had committed. And I think that's an important piece that we need to explore as well in any conversation about forgiveness and about wrongdoing is the, the complex layers of moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy Sherman is a moral philosopher that we both know about and mm-hmm. uh, talks about weak and strong moral responsibility that certainly I have 
stronger moral responsibility as the one who pulled the trigger and, and fired that BB gun. It would be a lie to say that my parents didn't share some responsibility for my behavior. Right. As a 10-year-old or 9-year-old, the parents are primary educators, including moral educators in the home. Mm -hmm. And of course, I have agency and we all have agency. So, you know, there's, there's complicated nuances of who shares some responsibility. Mm -hmm. And my parents definitely felt responsible. Which sounds like a healthy thing. It does, yes, <laughs> yeah. And I, and, and I think I carry that with me today when we talk about larger issues that go beyond individual relationships to relationships between groups across time, across history, mm -hmm. um, the relationship between our country and Japan with what happened in 1945 in Hiroshima. And the other story I wanted to mention was, was Rwanda uh, and what happened in 1994 and what didn't happen right. in terms of the relationship between our country, the United States, and Rwanda during the genocide. And, and th these stories are part of my story in very personal ways uh, with related to Japan. My wife is Japanese and we've been married for over 20 years and my ch our children are multiracial. So I have that very personal connection with the people of Japan. It's part of my blood and my household. Mm -hmm. With regards to Rwanda, uh, I had a classmate, his name is Isidore. Uh, my wife's name is Mitsuko. In seminary, I had a classmate who was a Tutsi, which was the targeted group right. of the Hutus during that genocide in 1994 that, that killed 800,000 people in, in 40 days. The United States could have stopped it, I believe, I believe that. Uh, the United States could have stopped it, but didn't. And that was a decision that eventually Bill Clinton apologized for uh, to the people of Rwanda because he was president at that time. So um, I wasn't alive in 1945. I was alive in 1994. But my relationship with Isidore and my relationship with Mitsuko and then the experience I've had going to Japan, especially my experience visiting Hiroshima and Nagasaki and meeting Hibakusha, people who survived the atomic bombings, have raised for me, I think, really a moral struggle about layers of moral responsibility for things that my country has done, like drop the atomic bomb, and things that my country has failed to do, like failed to intervene mm -hmm. uh, in an unfolding genocide in Rwanda that actually happened in my lifetime during my adult life. When you talk about Japan, for instance, you know, many people would say, well, you know, the Japanese started the war, or you know, the cost of the war was so great. We hear, you know, rationales given for the dropping of the atomic bomb. At the same time, um, you know, to drop, you know, an atomic weapon on two cities, well, two cities of any people, but two cities populated primarily by civilians, you know, is, is well, atrocious doesn't quite do justice. I know that you have traveled to Hiroshima, that you uh, went to the mound. Yeah, the, there's a place in Hiroshima called the mound, and it is um, said to be the site of the ashes of some 80,000 people. Mm -hmm. It um, is a sacred site. It's close to uh, Ground Zero, mm -hmm. where the a blast hit. I was there uh, 
twice, most recently on August 6th, uh, 2015, for the 70th anniversary of, of the bombing. Uh, and also in 2015, uh, I was in Nagasaki on August, August 9th. And um, the first time I went to Japan was right after I was married in 1998, and I visited Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1998. And uh, what struck me the most about the, those visits was the uh, inability I found myself, my own inability to feel the sheer magnitude of the pain of those places. And I was, more than anything else, I was very troubled by that. I was very troubled by, I felt the limit of my own capacity to even begin to grasp the pain of these places. And um, I felt even some guilt about that, that, that I... About the lack of feeling. The, the, the sense of coldness, like, mm -hmm. like I was learning and, I, and it was all above the head. I went to these museums and I, and I saw these places but it was very much in the head, and I, and I wasn't able to feel below the head, below the neck, below the neck. And so I determined, I said, I, yeah, I'm going to come back to these places. And when I come back, it's going to be different. I want, I, want to, I want to engage in these places and this, this history, this story, below the neck. Almost 20 years later, yeah, I did go back. Mm -hmm. um, Certainly my marriage, my relationship with Mitsuko, raising children, and just that experience of being a father and a husband, I think was a big part of what deepened my capacity to experience empathy for mm -hmm. Japanese people. Mm -hmm. I also decided on the second trip with some intention, and I had done also some reading. I'd educated myself about World War II, about the decision to drop the bomb, reading materials from Japanese authors as well as United States and other countries trying to get a broader sense of the context at that time. And I reached the conclusion uh, that it was not necessary. There was no military necessity for this action. And I still believe this. Uh, that it was not necessary to end the war and to save American lives, which is the reason most commonly recited in surveys of citizens of the United States. The bomb saved American lives and ended the war. I've come to believe through my own research that those claims are historically unsustainable and that there was actually something else going on. Uh, with the Soviet Union entering into the war, it was a political act, not driven by military necessity. So that doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> and when I say it doesn't sit well, it means I see that as a significant wrongdoing, an act, that as it says, there's a stone in Hiroshima at the memorial that says uh, that this mistake may never happen again. But it doesn't elucidate what is the mistake. Okay, yeah. And I've talked with Hibakusha about that as well. And some would interpret it the mistake of Japanese militarism. But others interpret it as the mistake of using an atomic bomb on a city. Mm -hmm. And that's where I've come to see it as a mistake. So I actually wrote a letter to carry with me on my second trip. And I had it in English and Japanese. And I worked hard on this letter. And it was a letter 
of apology, of acknowledging a mistake, a historical mistake, from, an, from a citizen of the United States, from myself. I wasn't alive, and I said this in the letter, I wasn't alive in 1945, but I feel regret. I see it as a mistake. I'm sorry that it happened. And in that letter, I expressed a commitment that as a citizen of the United States, I'll do whatever I can do to see that my country does not use nuclear weapons again anywhere. Mm -hmm. you know, I thought I owed that to the Japanese people. So I brought that letter with me uh, on the second trip. It was English and Japanese. And I had maybe 20 copies. I met Hibakusha uh, in Hiroshima and also in Japan. And uh, most of them received it. Uh, responses were quite diverse. I remember a woman in Hiroshima received it from me in tears. And she said something like, I've been waiting my whole life for something like this. Mm. Wow. And in Nagasaki, I met a man who uh, told us, I was with a group, and he told his story of being eight years old, 500 meters from the hypocenter when the Nagasaki bomb detonated on August 9th, and how he'd lost everything. He had suffered burns and been in dozens of surgeries. And when I approached him after his testimony with the letter, uh, he looked at it, he wouldn't take it, and he looked at me with very cold eyes, and he said, this was unforgivable. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget that encounter. Mm -hmm. And I've, that experience has certainly informed my position that I laid out at the beginning of this conversation, right. that there's some acts that ought to be unforgivable. Mm -hmm. And I certainly would list the dropping of the atomic bombs by the United States as an act that ought to be unforgivable. The danger, and I think what would make forgiveness uh, morally vacuous rather than morally virtuous mm -hmm. in the case of the atomic bombing is simply this, that the United States continues to stockpile and to produce atomic bombs. Mm -hmm. The United States continues to maintain a policy of first use and is willing to use atomic bombs against the non-atomic threat. And that's the policy. So it's, um, it's hard to, 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 to look at the current situation in the United States with regards to our nuclear arsenal and our nuclear policy and see that the nation has done any sense of moral reckoning mm -hmm. with what happened in 1945, has done any acknowledgement as a society so given that, for forgiveness to be extended for what um, happened in 1945 seems um, premature, at least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I mean, several of the things. I mean, you told a couple powerful stories there. And it strikes me that um, the, both of the responses to your letter that you shared need to be honored mm -hmm. deeply, both of them. And that the, um, the encounters were very personal, even though, you know, I mean, they represent each person's suffering or guilt represents something bigger than just themselves. Uh, you know, you, in a sense, uh, you took an action 
you know, in a humble but very interpersonal way, um, you know, made a statement about your own intention, about how you, how you felt, about responsibility that you felt, even if you weren't alive in 1945, responsibility that you felt for, for, the, uh, for the aftermath. For the yeah, continuing. That's, an, that's an important point because I don't think anybody can apologize. I can't apologize for what happened in 1945. It's not my place to apologize, but I can apologize for being a citizen of a country that continues to stockpile these weapons mm -hmm. today. And and that's that's kind of where I came out in my own kind of wrestling with this issue. First of all, I decided I chose to take moral responsibility mm -hmm. rather than rationalize it or or I thought this that I ought to be morally responsible in some way mm -hmm. even in a weak way and what became clear to me was that even though this happened 74 years ago now the fact that the United States still has this stockpiles and policies is causing anguish mm -hmm. to the Hibakusha who are still living mm -hmm that many of these people have dedicated their whole lives to the abolishment of nuclear weapons. So the fact that the United States continues to maintain these stockpiles and these policies is causing harm today, mm -hmm. causing mm -hmm. harm to the Habakasha, to their children, those who were able to have children, and to many other Japanese people and many people other around the world, but especially those people who've been directly harmed mm -hmm. by this practice. So it's not like the harm is over. Right that the harm is ongoing. And that's where I can say that I have maybe strong moral responsibility, mm -hmm. that I am a citizen and I pay taxes and these tax dollars go into uh, funding these arsenals, that we have uh, a command and contro control structure such that the President of the United States is authorized solely to make these decisions of whether to use this arsenal or not, and he's elected by the people. I can't escape my moral responsibility for belonging mm -hmm. to this society. Mm -hmm. As long as I belong to this society, right. Right. I have other options. Mm -hmm. I could leave, right. and I haven't done that. Right. So I've chosen to stay, and with that choice, I think I need to assume certain responsibility for what's done and what's not done mm -hmm. um, in my name, right. in our name. Well, and you, um, you have said that you see forgiveness as, um, as uh, you know, complicated, you know, and it seems to me that in the way that we're talking about forgiveness and what uh, may or may not be called for in a situation, we're talking about relationships at a number of levels, not, not just one level, but a number of levels. I mean, even when you're talking about your citizenship and the sense of responsibility you feel for that. You know, you're located here, your home has been here, you have family who live here. And you also have a wife who hails from a different place that you have come to know. Um, and you have had numerous experiences now in your life that have put you or placed you in the experience of a much larger world than just living in, you know, a town in North America. Um, and, you know, your military experience has taken you uh, into, into, into the midst of war. Uh, so you've experienced that personally. Um, I often think of forgiveness and not just as an action, but as a power. And I'm just kind of working with, uh, uh, you know, with the spiritual 
you know, energy there and the spiritual power. Forgiveness, even in his practice, is something that interferes with um, cycles of retribution and uh, the compounding of pain. And, um, I mean, a part of the pain that you've articulated for yourself is that actions, you know, collectively that our nation takes today and continues to take without any form of repentance uh, continues to, to hurt people, to compound the pain for those who have originally suffered. And, of course, you know, the production of nuclear weapons and the resources involved and uh, the ways that they're wielded are, you know, um, cause all sorts of anguish and pain for people. Uh, and yet, in the midst of all that, you've also found personal agency. And, um, you know, forgiveness, um, you know, in a broader sense, I, I mean, it, 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 I'm thinking about you on your trip to Japan, um, taking you, your, yourself, your sense of integrity, your, your, your regret, um, you know, that that coldness that you said was so hard for you to deal with and kind of working with that. It, I mean, you offered yourself in particular ways without a particular, um, I mean, you couldn't engineer an outcome. And yet your very authentic interaction with people, including the two people that you described, um, you know, uh, I mean, that's real interaction. That's real interpersonal inter interaction. And it does impact one another. Yeah, you mentioned the mound, and, I, and I, just a quick story about the mound, because I, I told you about that coldness in that first mm -hmm. trip and my determination to move below the neck. And the moment where that actually ha happened for me in a very visceral way was at the mound in, in 2015. I was there with as a, as a guest religious leader for a religious ceremony that's done at the mound on August 6th at sunrise with a diverse group of religious leaders. And um, I remember um, ritual being used and there was an altar set up at the mound. There were Japanese religious leaders from different traditions coming forward and leading some kind of ritual at that altar. And I remember there were there's a Christian group and they sang a hymn that that came up and and I remember there was a Shinto group, and um, and then I remember the monks, and this is where it opened up for me, where it became uh, below the neck. Mm -hmm. The monks approached the altar, and they had a little. Uh, they're called in Korean. They're called moktoks. I can't. I don't know the Japanese word, but they're little gongs, wooden sticks that they're knocking. And and they're standing there. And then the head monk stepped forward, dropped to his knees, raised his arms up into the sky, and screamed. And it was the most blood-curdling scream of anguish I'd ever heard or witnessed. Mm -hmm. But it was so appropriate mm -hmm. because words can't capture the depth of pain of that place in that moment and those memories that we were honoring. And that's what opened it up for me. Mm -hmm. And I began weeping. That was an important point um, for me in my life, actually. And perhaps more, and uh, perhaps more than the letters, it was my tears, I thought, that was the gift. Mm -hmm. 
to the people. Mm -hmm. I was very conscious of the television cameras that were all over that ceremony. And I happened to be the only like Western face. Mm -hmm. And I was the American, you know, representative right. in that group. Nobody really knew my name, but it was clear that I looked differently. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was that face sitting there in this. So I thought, you know, this, this is the place for me to give my tears. And I, and I, I really wanted to be able to go to that place as I was sitting there. And the monk helped me, mm -hmm. the monk helped me reach that place of contrition, I think, mm -hmm. of sorrow. Um, so he called that forth, really, in a sense. It was a profoundly spiritual moment, and it speaks, I think, a certain truth about about Buddhism, and, a, and even maybe a larger truth about the religious path, which which is certainly mm -hmm. my truth, mm -hmm. and that is that the religious path, the spiritual path, is not about feeling good. It's not about moving away from suffering. It's not even, as an aim, about being happy. So my, the truth that I live in is that the spiritual path is about living well. And to use Peter Maron's phrase, living in moral pain. Mm -hmm. Engaged in a world that's in pain. Not avoiding it, not moving away from it. Mm -hmm. But living in the midst of suffering in the ways that Martin Luther King did, that Mother Teresa did, that these people that we point to as great religious and spiritual leaders did. And the concern I have about forgiveness is maybe Bonhoeffer's concern about cheap grace, mm -hmm. or is that premature forgiveness, that mm -hmm. sometimes we need to live in that moral pain and abide in that place of suffering mm -hmm. in order to, um, to grow, mm -hmm. in order to thrive, in order to reconcile, in order to make amends. In order to reconcile, the wounds need to be tended and acknowledged and touched uh, rather than denied. It seems to me, I've been at this a while with forgiveness, that even after all these years, you know, people are constantly, maybe it's the training, but people are constantly confusing or equating forgiveness with excusing. That somehow, you know, um, when we ask for forgiveness, we're asking to be excused for what we did. And who knows, when, when one of us is asking forgiveness, maybe that is what we're looking for. But, but I don't think that's what, the, what we need. And it's not what you know, broken relationships need uh, or you know, violations of trust need. You know, they need truth. They need encounter. Um, if there's a possibility, I mean, for me, when I think of forgiveness, it's more about you know, where is the energy of the, or the possibility of still acknowledging relationship in the midst of deep pain? And maybe just needing to be with that for a long time. As you said, before you can go anywhere else with it. Um, even theologically, I mean, in terms of my own faith tradition, I think of God's forgiveness not as absolution for everything that we've done, but as a way of saying, you know, I will never forsake you. In other words, uh, no matter what's happened, you don't get rid of me. <laughs> we still have a relationship, no matter what condition it's in. Mm -hmm. And and so, um, you know, I, I know you've heard me tell this story, but I think, you know, I'd, I'd want to repeat it now. I have a friend, you know, uh, uh, who lost his son in the North Tower of the World Trade Center on September 11th of 2001 um, in the initial crash of the plane into 
And, you know, he was grief-stricken. Obviously, he's very, very close to his son. Shared the same name. Um, he came and spoke to our congregation here. He was a member of the September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. He, uh, he came here and talked about, um, about losing his son, but also about um, how he saw a way forward in terms of relationship with people across the globe, and a relationship with the Afghan people, for instance. Mm -hmm. He articulated very poignantly, and he had done this with me in a personal conversation too, the horrible pain that he felt after the bombing of Afghanistan began, mm -hmm. and within a couple of weeks, as many people, civilians had been killed in Afghanistan as were killed on 9-11 here, and he couldn't, st he was already grieving the loss of his son, he couldn't stand the realization that the same kind of horror was being visited on families in Afghanistan in the name of avenging his son. He just couldn't bear that. But I always remember him upstairs in this building talking to our congregation and saying, you know, those 19 people, those 19 young men, they did a terribly evil thing. But I don't think of them as evil people. They're people who come from families, in many cases families that love, love them, communities that nurtured them. And, and as Bob talked, I mean, he really, he humanized the perpetrators. Yeah. He didn't excuse anything, obviously. Uh, but he and I were once having a conversation about forgiveness, and he said to me, or the topic came up, and he said, Scott, I can't even think about forgiveness. And I didn't say anything, but I thought in my head, the kind of thing that he was saying to the congregation, that's the yeah. beginning. Yeah. I mean, the humanizing of the other person, while in no way... Yeah. saying there's anything that could be excused about that, mm -hmm. that that's, that's the territory of forgiveness too, that, mm -hmm. that kind of human relationship and acknowledgement. I mean, we can't demand that from people. And I know that in my own tradition, that's what's happened. You must forgive is a message that lots of people in Christian churches have heard. And I, I'm not even sure what that means, but I know that it's been a heavy burden for people. And it's going to be very shaming for the victim of wrongdoing. Yes. It's, that you're not um, forgiving enough, mm -hmm. that, that, that puts the burden on the victim often, right? Um, which right. seems to uh, be wrong. Right. Um, just the, you, you mentioned of September 11th, uh, for me, that happened three years after my first visit to Hiroshima. Uh, as uh, horrific as that was, I think because I had been to Hiroshima three years before and had been thinking with moral seriousness about violence and the violence that my own country has inflicted on others just by sheer numbers in terms of the numbers of dead. Mm -hmm. September 11th is minuscule compared to what was inflicted on the Japanese people in Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. Talking about 3,000, 4,000 people compared to 80,000, 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just for me, it was helpful, I think, just to see things in context um, in that way, which uh, for me also meant before I, this is, this is, this is gospel, before, before you point out the, the stick in your neighbor's eye, look at the log in your own. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, so yes, th this was atrocity and violence that was perpetrated on people that, that shouldn't have suffered mm -hmm. on September 11th. Right. But I would say the same, I would say the same about mm -hmm. August 6, 1945 mm -hmm. times, times, mm -hmm. times 10. 
Right. Times 100. So what the man in Nagasaki mm. said to you is something that righteously somebody from, you know, New York or Washington or, uh, or, or, or a relative of people who were on those planes could say. Out of their own experience, out of their own pain. Um, perhaps, and if we think just concretely in terms of the perpetrators of that act, mm -hmm. they're dead. Right. So, yeah, right. so it's unforgivable in that sense. Right, right. Because how do you restore a relationship with somebody when they're dead? Right, right. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's something, too, though, that's lost, you know, when we... When we think about, um, you know, how one responds to a serious injury, uh, you know, 15 Saudi Arabians and four Egyptian men commandeered planes on September 11th and crashed them, uh, the resulting 3,000 people who died. Um, what wound up then coming out of that and the response to that was how many thousands, even hundreds of thousands potentially of people in Afghanistan or in the or in the, the follow-up war in Iraq mm -hmm. lost their lives as a result of the same cycle, the same, you know. In, in, yeah, and we need to look at the cycles, I think, if we are ser committed to living lives of moral seriousness and sensitivity. Uh, I never, I didn't go to the Ground Zero uh, until years after when the memorial was built. And I, I went recently, I went um, two years ago, and it was a very meaningful visit for a couple of reasons. One is I was there with my children, my, I went with my five children. It was Memorial Day, 2017. And the other thing that made it quite meaningful was I was there with Tariq. Uh, that Tariq is an Afghan who was an interpreter for the U.S. Army, and I met him in Kandahar. And... Uh, over a period of five years, I worked with, uh, with others to help Tariq and his four children and his wife secure refugee visas to come to the United States. They finally came in the fall of 2016. Um, I met him at the airport in Buffalo. So I invited Tariq to come and visit, and it was the first time he rode a train. He took the train from Buffalo uh, to the Hudson Valley, and then we went on a train together down to Ground Zero and went to the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to, um, to go through that exhibit um, with, with Tariq, with an Afghan, who just as my, you know, my life and my family's life had been upended by this event, and I had deployed and left my family and gone to Afghanistan, Tariq had also, his life had been upended in a different kind mm -hmm. of way. And, and, and in some almost mysterious way, it was this tragedy that happened at this place that brought us together in a, in a relationship. And, and um, so what I remember uh, most, I mean, there, there's, it was a very powerful exhibit, but I, but I remember being disturbed by the, the sense of the presentation that I got at, that, at the museum at that time was it presented the United States this narrative of innocence attacked. Here it was a, a, a clear blue day in September 11th and people were just going about 
their day-to-day business, and then out of the blue, you know, attacked, innocence attacked. That was, that was the overarching narrative. Um, and a lot of focus on the aftermath and on the fire department. And there was one room you had to navigate through this maze and labyrinth of rooms to get to this one room where they, they had one little 30 second maybe video about, oh yeah, the United States was in Afghanistan and uh, Osama bin Laden was part of the Mujahideen that the United States funded to mm-hmm. fight against the Soviets. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and oh yeah, that the, the United States occupied Saudi Arabia with the military and that caused significant uh, upset among certain Muslims. And um, why did the United States occupy Saudi Arabia? Well, those details were very much not mentioned mm-hmm. or um, certainly not highlighted. So, yes, you know, we as a people were victims, but at the same time, we can't lose sight of the way we've also been perpetrated, and, and it's not black and white, that we're not innocent attacked, that the United States has done things in the world that have upset people, and I think rightly so. And I'm not suggesting that the 9-11 attacks were a legitimate or appropriate response. But there's a considerable degree of resentment in the world towards me, towards you, as people of the United States. Appropriate resentment for our betrayal of what's right, as defined by international human rights norms, as defined by how we ought to live in the world as a community of nations, and how the United States relates as a superpower to other nations of the world, how we use that power, and how we don't use that power. It's a lot lot of important things to think about there, Um, the context that we live in. Do you you think that repentance is necessary for forgiveness? Do you think that a perpetrator needs to repent in order for forgiveness to take place? Well, as you said, it's complicated. I think that forgiveness is is a pow- is a power, mm-hmm. and um, if a victim needs to forgive to um, move out of hatred and a sense of debilitating resentment, then um, it's actually disempowering for the victim to put conditions on it and to say, "Well, you." You can't forgive until this person mm-hmm. shows contrition. Right, right, right. So I'm. Um, that further imprisons the victim, actually. It further imprisons the victim. Yeah. So, on an interpersonal level, I would. I think I would say that forgiveness is the prerogative of, of the victim. Mm-hmm. And um, included in that prerogative is the right to place conditions on the forgiveness, like I want to see con- repentance, contrition, mm-hmm. um, or not. And I think included in the right of the victim is whether or not the victim wants to restore a relationship with the perpetrator or not. Right. Right. Rather than being compelled to. Or... So you ought to be in that relationship and you know take for example the battered 
spouse. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think the church or religious institutions can be um, complicit in violence, where the battered wife is told you should forgive your husband and you must stay in that marriage relationship because marriage is um, God's what's right with God and what's right with the teachings of our church and divorce is not allowed and uh, I, I see that as, as tragic um, tragic and um, brutalizing I was going to say is it not a form of violence yeah 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 compelling forgiveness or even seeking to orchestrate it seems to me to be an offense itself is sometimes in our culture especially when it comes to people of 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 faith um sometimes victims are are expected i mean people are almost looking for victims to you know somehow heroically express some level of forgiveness um and it seems to me that that uh yeah that's coercive and really doesn't get to the heart or the truth of things i mean people were astounded back um, a few years ago in Charleston when that uh, white supremacist young man murdered the people in the Bible study there. Mm. And the family members made expressions of forgiveness. And, you know, there was a lot of struggle in the community because some people saw that as a good thing and other people thought, yeah, this is unforgivable. But, you know, none of the victims that I heard said that what happened was somehow excusable or anything but this horrible mm -hmm. tragedy but they also acknowledged in in some cases and almost um in just such a pained way how they had welcomed the young man into the mm -hmm. bible study mm -hmm. and tended to him before before he started murdering people you know yeah i think uh, it's more nuanced than just thinking about forgivable and unforgivable obviously i think there there's acts that that um can be forgiven in time mm -hmm. right so in between that forgive, forgivable and unforgivable, mm -hmm. there's that, well, yes, it, it, maybe it's forgivable, but just not now. Right. And what happened in, in Charleston, it was, was awful. Um, what uh, comes to mind, and then maybe we, we should finish up because yeah. it's getting warm in here, yeah. um, is the, so the value of not forgiving for time mm -hmm. and allowing ourselves to experience um, those painful moral emotions, that kind of moral pain that Peter Maron was talking about mm -hmm. in his famous essay, Living in Moral Pain, which he wrote in the 1980s, um, allowing ourselves to experience that righteous indignation over injustice, mm -hmm. um, and maybe allowing, if we're the perpetrator, allowing ourselves to experience that appropriate guilt, and, uh, and then finding motivation mm -hmm. out of those emotions mm -hmm. to do restorative work in the world, to do restitution, to do um, amends. Mm -hmm. And so look to the story of, of Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, for example. Um, the founder, I can't remember her name, but lost a child. Felt incredible anger. Child was killed by a drunk driver maybe very difficult to forgive that but out of that righteous indignation started a movement right mm -hmm. mothers against drunk drivers what the the trauma psychologist judith herman calls survivor's mission mm -hmm. 
And how wonderful is that for people to find out of their pain this sense of survivor's mission? Mm-hmm. And you know what might happen if uh, this mother had been counseled by you know a priest or mm-hmm. a clergy somewhere along the line is as well. You you just should forgive and 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 move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know I don't know, but maybe you know maybe that kind of forgiveness intervention at that point would have sabotaged this person's survivor's mission. Right. right. A sense of, um, that can often be driven by those negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Guilt as well. Right. And, and that directly speaks to the work I'm doing with veterans now yeah. who are often experiencing guilt over perpetration. And rather than offering cheap grace or some kind of premature forgiveness. We want to create a space where that guilt can be shared and it can be used to teach the larger community that that larger community through that relationship with the veteran in his or her moral pain can be awakened to greater moral responsibility for the community's part and what the veteran has and has not done. Mm And we hope, and we're seeing this unfold, and you've seen the evidence of it, mm-hmm. that these veterans discover a sense of mission, mm-hmm. that they can become powerful teachers right. and minister to ministers. Yes, <laughs> as, well, as, which is my experience. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is my experience. Yeah, I have thought about, um, you know, like, for instance, in the compass circle here, that... Um, in a way, it's kind of forgiving space. You know, we're not talking about any kind of transaction here. We're, we're talking about a space, uh, you know, or a space for grace, as you've written about. Um, you know, a place that invites the sharing of, of one's story in, in, in a context where it can be heard and received and honored. Um, and where, uh, you know, anguish and pain too can be, uh, uh, you know, can be shared in the burden of that carried or at least, you know, tended to, um, or back to, you know, something that you just alluded to, but that we also discussed early in the conversation or, or touched on back then is, you know, the role of the larger community in the life of veterans, uh, the burdens that veterans carry, the wounds or the inner wounds, the soul wounds that they may carry from their experience. Uh, you know, that we have responsibility. You know, that we've had, you talk very poignantly about the social contract uh, between, you know, the nation, the citizens of the nation and the, and the armed forces. And I also like to think about that in terms of covenant. You know, in a, in a, in a faith tradition like ours, you know, many veterans come out of our communities. What's our covenantal relationship with them? And what's our responsibility? Um, you know, and rather than, as um, you once articulated, outsourcing our killing to the 1%, <laughs> taking responsibility for everything, mm-hmm. you know, that's done in our name and reckoning with the, uh, with, with the, the ramifications of it. Yeah, at least responsibility in the weak sense, if mm-hmm. not the strong mm-hmm. sense. And, and our mutual colleague, Kelly denton Borhog, I think, offers that framework of the triangle of violence and those who are directly involved in violence, and then the structural violence, the cultural violence. I think she got it from a 
theorist Galtung or mm. some somebody's I don't remember mm. the name. That sounds right. Yon but, but the idea that um, the veteran may be the one who's involved in perpetrating that direct violence, mm -hmm. um, but the larger society, the social contract, the civil-military relations in the U.S. society, uh, which puts the military under civilian control, mm -hmm. ultimately, uh, and command, with the president being the commander-in-chief, uh, it's part of that larger triangle of violence, the structural piece of violence, and then the cultural, which actually ties into the church and mm -hmm. religious institutions and what the church in the United States says and doesn't say and what's communicated by silence. The silence, yes. Uh, when the nation uh, in which the these churches inhabit is engaged in perpetrating violence. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of the last two decades, uh, in a global battlefield. And through uh, the use often of what we've talked about as remotely piloted drones. So these are all um, sources of moral pain mm -hmm. <laughs> in my life. Right. And I'm grateful to actually live a life that um, I would describe as morally engaged. Mm -hmm. That um, I regard the strengths that I bring to my ministry as moral seriousness and moral sensitivity. And I think that I also bring a strength of, I have a capacity to hold moral pain. And, and people have different capacities. And, and I, th I think it's important that we need to respect that people have different capacities. And some people have a greater capacity to live with um, guilt and, and moral responsibility and, and, and righteous indignation and, and acknowledgement of painful truths than others. Mm -hmm. Other people don't have those capacities, and they need self-deception, perhaps. Mm -hmm. They need those vital lies, as Daniel Goleman calls them, to, to just live and function in, mm -hmm. a, world, in a life that's hard. Um, and so uh, living, living a life that's morally engaged and, and, and holding um, pain um, is a life that also is, um, includes a bit of anxiety mm -hmm. and discomfort. Um, but for me, for me, uh, in my work and in my life, that is a meaningful life. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, a, the life that I've chosen. Amen. Well, we could talk a lot more, but as you pointed out, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's warm in here. It's 100 degrees outside, <laughs> approaching 90 probably in here, or 85. So, um, uh, maybe uh, at some point, uh, you know, we have another conversation and uh, and talk even more about uh, the work with veterans and what things like forgiveness and atonement. Uh, we, we we engaged both of those things. We didn't name atonement, but you were talking about restitution and and taking action action. Uh, you know, serving others as something that's that can be important in journeys of healing. Um, yeah, the conversations about forgiveness are important as our conversations about beyond forgiveness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much, Chris. Uh, it's, uh, it's a, it's a pleasure. And, um, I, I rejoice in our friendship too. <laughs>